I've always been fond of the word hope. It's just a great word. Like all great words, this this one is often abused. Um, but the true meaning of hope is powerful. And uh, even Webster's gets, gets it mostly right. Uh, they use several phrases to divine, define hope. Hope is um, to cherish a desire with anticipation. I think of that song, there was an old song, um, Jesus, Joy of Man's Desiring. Uh, All about Advent and Jesus coming, anticipating desire. It's to desire with expectation, Webster says, and then it's to expect with confidence. A biblical definition of hope should retain these ideas of desire and anticipation, but the more important word there is probably confidence. And the confidence of biblical hope is rooted in the fact that there is reason to hope, particularly when a promise of God is involved. Biblical hope is much more than wishful thinking. I got a lot of wishful thinking going right now. Anybody else? (laughs) Biblical hope is more than that. Last week we talked about faith. You may wonder, what is the difference between faith and hope? Well, semantics are always in flux, but let me tell you how we might define the difference in the context of spiritual things. Faith is in who God is. Hope is in what he will do. Faith is in God's character. Hope is in his promises. True hope is based on faith. Christmas could be called the season of hope because we tend to hope for certain things to happen around Christmas. Some more important, some less important. I might or may or may not be hoping to receive a certain golf bag for Christmas. That's probably not a a very, very important uh, bit of hope, but, but it's there. Some, some less important, some more important. We hope for things around Christmas. Regardless, hope is a good thing. Hope is a good thing. And we, and we need it in our lives. We need hope in our lives. Renowned psychologist Viktor Frankl and others have found that without hope, human beings cannot survive. Without hope, a person will become lost in depression, anxiety, fatalism, and fear. 
Hope is what you cling to when you've lost your job or your health or someone you, you love. It's a spark. It's a spark inside your soul that tells you tomorrow things will be better. Someone said hope is like having an anchor in the future. Hope in general is so very important. But let me get back to this. The best hope is based upon the promises of God. And what were the wise men hoping to find when they followed that star all the way from Bethlehem, uh, all the way to Bethlehem from the east? They were hoping to find the Messiah, the anointed one from God who would ultimately bring peace even on earth. They were hoping to find the eternal king who would usher in joy and offer goodwill to men. As we will discover today, their hope was undoubtedly placed in the promise of God. But how did they know the promised one was coming at that time? And what did a star have to do with their search? And how is any of this supposed to make any difference in my life? That's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. Hope is the motivator. Hope is the motivator of the human soul. Even a more shallow hope built on slightly uh, so that uh, on the slightest possibility of something good happening can, can sometimes keep you going through hardship. But hope that is anchored in the certainty of God's promise can do so much more. Hope like that could turn your life into an, a God-honoring, joy-filled, and meaningful journey. We can see a great illustration of that kind of journey in the story of the wise men. These men, also known as Magi, eventually arrived in Bethlehem after a long, expensive, and difficult expedition. What brought them there was not a wishful thought, for a wish would have never set them on their course or seen them through their journey. But since their hope was anchored in the certainty of God's promise, they eventually arrived at the rewarding end of their dangerous, now famous quest. These men were certain. They were certain that the King of Kings had been born and they understood enough about who he was to come prepared to worship him. Let's see what we can learn from these who were deemed wise in their day. First, the wise men teach us that believing God is the source of true hope. 
Believing God is the source of true hope. Let's read the first part of the story, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born? See what I mean about certainty? King of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, before we talk about the fact that believing God is the source of, of real hope, let's establish just who these Magi were. I believe the Magi traveled from Babylonia, which was the kingdom directly to the east of Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Babylonia was eventually conquered by the Persians and later by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. Finally, by the time of Christ, the region had been brought under Roman rule. Throughout its history, Babylonia was known for wealth, for power, and indeed, for magi. The word magi comes from the Greek word magoi, which was itself derived from a Persian word described uh, describing a select set of Persian priests. These, these priests functioned as the religious, civil, and political counselors to the kings of Persia. In time, they became the kingmakers. Actually had the power to select and appoint the next king. The Magi were highly educated, hence our term for them, wise men. Their education included a mix of astronomy, science, and religion. Magi were typically very interested in studying the stars. They were also interpreters of dreams. Maybe you remember some of the story of Daniel. Recall that it was in Babylon, partly under Persian rule, that Daniel's story took place. He was one of the thousands of Jews who were uh, deported from Judah and forced to live in captivity in Babylonia. You may remember that Daniel was able to interpret dreams, dreams that none of the Babylonian magi could dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because of that ability, Daniel and his Hebrew brethren, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were designed, or designated as magi under the Babylonian kings. And they continued in that role under the Persian kings, soon to take over. In fact, under the Persian king Darius, Daniel was given the title Rab-Mage, meaning chief of the Magi. Fast forward several centuries to New Testament times. Even though the Persians have since been conquered by Alexander the Great and brought into the Greek, or if you prefer, Seleucid Empire, which had in turn given way to the Roman uh, conquest, still... 
Babylonia has these groups of magi, and they wielded great power. One of these groups is obviously waiting and watching for the coming Messiah. How did they know? They were not Jewish priests or scribes. How did they know the Hebrew words of the prophets, those who had predicted the coming of the Messiah? Where did these magi get their hope in this king of kings who would be born? We will answer those questions as we go along, but first it's important to notice that whatever, wherever they got their information, they believed it. The Magi who journeyed to Bethlehem believed what the God of Israel had promised would happen. And that takes me back to my point that believing God was their source of hope. The application for us is clear that like them, we can find hope in believing God. So let's take a closer look at what it meant for these magi to find hope through believing God. First, hope that believes God means trusting his promises. Trusting his promises. In the case of the magi, trusting God's promises meant putting their hope in his prophecies. Broken down even further, believing God meant believing God's prophets. Believing that what his spokesman had said was true, that the writings of men like Daniel should be considered the unchangeable, timeless word of God. The Magi trusted the promises of God by trusting the word of his prophets. Many prophets prophesied about the coming of Jesus, but the one who probably impacted these magi the most was the one who had lived among them and again had previously held a position as their chief. That was Daniel. And now it gets really interesting. There is one passage and only one passage in all of the Bible that foretells the actual time of the Messiah's first coming. That passage is Daniel 9, 24 through 26. Let's read it. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to put down rebellion, to bring it into sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. 
The end will come with a flood and war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Now, I can't get bogged down in trying to explain all of this prophecy as if I could. But one thing becomes clear with a little bit of study. Theologians have discovered that if you assume sets of seven refers to sets of seven years, then the seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven equals 483 years. And so Daniel, God's prophet, predicted that 483 years would pass between a fixed historical event, Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and the coming of this anointed one, another name for the Messiah, the Christ. 483 years. That's a pretty specific prediction, isn't it? And guess what? It wasn't long until the Persian king Artaxerxes did, in fact, issue that decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Scholars have placed the date of that decree at March 5th, 444 B.C. Looking back to that date, our Magi could have estimated that the birth of the Anointed One was drawing near. You see, Daniel's 483 years were almost up. It was just about time for the Anointed One to be born somewhere in Judah. Now, Guess who gave Daniel all this information about the time of the coming of Christ? Guess who was God's messenger to Daniel telling him when the Messiah would come? The Bible says the one who revealed this information to Daniel was an angel named Gabriel. And of course, Gabriel is the exact same angel who explained things to Mary over four centuries later. Personally, I just, it just kind of blows my mind to realize that the same Gabriel who visited Mary had been the one to announce to Daniel that the anointed one, meaning the Messiah, would be revealed 483 years after a decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. And where was Daniel, and what was he doing when he received this message? Well, he was in Persia, serving as a magi. This prophecy came true to the year, and quite possibly to the day. 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey and allowed the people to praise him in the streets, proclaiming him the anointed one. They laid upon him, or they laid upon the street palm branches and declared, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
This can be shown to have occurred 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Today we have Daniel's prophecy in our Bibles. Easy to find. We, we each have a copy. But given his position as the chief advisor in the Persian court, Daniel certainly would have also shared this with the rest of the Magi serving under him. And they would have recorded it in their meticulous records. See, that's the most obvious way the Magi in the Christmas story would have known it was time. Some of them have apparently been passing this promise down. Isn't that what we do? They've been passing this promise down through the generations and waiting for this day from the time of Daniel when God showed them the star. And they put that together with what they already knew from Daniel. They were convinced. Also beyond their own records, we know that by now there existed a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, which would have included the book of Daniel. In fact, the Septuagint was the most extensive piece of literature in existence at that time, so these educated magi probably would have studied that as well. And now we get back to the point. <clears throat> Based on the journey they undertook, these wise men not only knew about the prophecies predicting the coming of Jesus, but they had accepted them as truth. That's the first facet of finding hope. Believing God. Trusting his promises. That's how we find hope. Listen, if the Magi had not received God's promises as truth, they would have never made such sacrifices. They would have never put so much effort into acting upon them. The same is true for us. If you look at God's word, the Bible, as something that might be true, Rather than trusting it as the word of God, you won't act on it. You won't risk your life for it and you won't find hope in it. The wise men found hope as they trusted the promises of God. That's also why they moved forward to the second part of believing God which is this, following his direction. Following his direction. In the case of the Magi, <clears throat> that direction came at least Partially in the form of a star. Now, by the way, whether this was an actual star or not is a matter that can be debated if you want to waste time. 
Obviously, literal stars do not move across the sky. If they did, we'd be in trouble. The Magi of 2,000 years ago called it a star. By the definitions used at that point in history, this was a star. But that doesn't mean it was necessarily the modern scientific definition of a star. The point is that there was a new light of some kind shining in the sky and it looked like a star to them. So the Magi knew it was about time for the Messiah. And maybe they'd been looking for a sign in order to actually start their journey. And in his sovereignty, God went ahead and gave them that sign. They believed God's promise they were waiting for more specific direction from him and he gave them that direction partly because they had already placed their hope in his promise you should be aware that we're not sure how the magi connected the star with the birth of jesus perhaps in the readings of the septuagint that greek version of the old testament they came to the very cryptic prophecy of Balaam. This prophecy is found in Numbers 24.1. It does mention a star coming out of Jacob or Israel. So maybe they knew this and made a connection. We don't know. What we do know is that while the Magi had apparently done the math and were looking for the coming of the king, the Jewish religious leaders had not done so and were oblivious to the fact that the king of kings had been born in obscurity less than 10 miles from their sacred temple. I think that's pretty interesting as it relates to the subject of hope and specifically that part of hope that is following God's direction. You see, the Jewish leaders had it pretty good at this point in history. They were often wealthy, and uh, they were sort of in bed with Rome to keep the peace. They would kind of work together. And because of that, most of them may not have really been looking for a savior. Some of the common people appear to have been on the lookout, people like the shepherds, but not most of the religious leaders, as we'll see in a moment. They knew where Jesus was to be born, but they weren't looking for him there. They must have thought they were in pretty good shape. Who needed a Messiah might be bad for business. And they were the educated ones. They were the ones who should have understood the prophecies and who should have been following God's direction in hope. But unlike the shepherds and these wise men from the east, the religious leaders of Jerusalem seemed direct, directionless in their hope. They, they seemed to hope for nothing more than the status quo. So we have two groups of people, those who weren't really believing God's promise and who therefore were not following his direction. And those who had believed God's promise and therefore were following his direction. 
Some things never change. The Magi believed God and found their source of hope in his promise. They followed his direction to receive exactly what they had hoped for. We can experience the same as we believe and follow after the promises of God with hope. But these magi can also teach us a second truth when it comes to hope, which is this. Serving Jesus is the fulfillment of hope. Serving Jesus is the fulfillment of hope. It's easy to see how the wise men saw their hope fulfilled in serving Jesus. I want to highlight three ways this is true. First of all, they served him in their journey. Wise men served Jesus in their journey. Think about this journey with me for a moment. Coming from afar from the east, their journey would have involved desolate lands and vast deserts. This journey would have taken them through many dangers. Imagine hiking from Denver to Portland and you'll have the basic idea in terms of distance. Picture hundreds of miles of absolutely nothing. The straight line distance was only about 500 miles. However, because of the need to follow rivers and find water, the actual trip from Babylon to Bethlehem was somewhere around a thousand miles. This would have required somewhere around five or six months of travel. Picture yourself plugging it into Google Maps this afternoon and hearing your phone say that you'll be arriving at your final destination sometime in May. By the way, weather-wise, if we could just... That sounds really good. Uh, the, these, these men, they left comforts that few enjoyed in those days. All to find Jesus, based on the fact that they came to worship and offer expensive gifts, it stands to reason these magi must have believed in this Hebrew God. They were believing in his promise. They promised a savior. Daniel's ministry was continuing to bear fruit. There were believers in Persia, you see. These men certainly didn't come all the way to worship a powerless newborn king of a relatively unimportant and tiny group of oppressed people, basically slaves in the Jews. Why would they do that? They came to worship God's son. They came for more than a coronation of a Jewish king. Their hope based on the scripture they apparently knew was in a savior. And they felt compelled, maybe even could say commissioned to go and to serve him somehow. They had to do something. 
It was too big. They had to go. I don't think it's a stretch at all to assume that the wise men embarked upon their long journey with the hope that Christ would fulfill the ancient promise of Scripture, promises like peace with God, goodwill to men from Him. Toward the end of their journey, the Magi stopped in Jerusalem. When they arrived in the capital city of, Jeru of Judah, the Bible says they made quite a stir. Given their status and based on the common practice for that time, the Magi would have traveled with a large entourage, including an escort of cavalry. They were like kings and could be seen that. We can see that in the fact that they were received by Herod. People wanted to know why they were there. What is going on? So they told them why they were there. I wonder if the Magi were surprised that so few seemed to have their same sense of expectation. In fact, all the Magi found in the capital city of God's people was disturbia. The Bible says when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. The prophet Micah had predicted seven centuries earlier that this eternal king of the Jews had come out of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. By the way, when God's word says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. Might want to remember that because some of the things the Bible says are going to happen haven't happened yet, namely the return of Christ, which will include the rescue of his people before wrath and judgment is poured out on everybody else. It's interesting to note that King Herod himself was actually not a Jew, though he may have tried to pose as one. Both of his parents were of Arab descent. He had been appointed king by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. A cruel and insecure man. He was known for killing anyone around him who had any chance of threatening his position and power. Among those Herod killed were three of his own sons, his favorite wife, I don't, I don't, I, did, I, I read this somewhere. He had a favorite, I, I, and he killed her. Uh, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and 300 court officials who tried to prevent the ex execution of his two sons. Herod was disturbed. 
And now he's disturbed at what the Magi were saying because being insanely paranoid and blindly jealous, he would not suffer any rival to his throne, not even if that rival were a baby. But why was the rest of Jerusalem disturbed? I would say that when Herod was disturbed, everyone around him quickly became disturbed as well. They knew there was going to be trouble. <laughs> but even this shows their lack of hope in God and his promise they were disturbed about the passing politics of their time well, the, the, the wise men they stayed focused on their hope in the fulfillment of God's promise. Hello, is this thing on? You following me? Well, what does all of this have to do with serving Jesus in the journey? Well, you see, the wise men found themselves right in the middle of all this turmoil, and they might, as, they might just as soon have turned back to the east. <laughs> there might be a little personal in there. That's where I come from. One wonders if this less than positive reaction of the people in Jerusalem made the Magi want to turn around and go home. Remember, all they have, all they have to go on here is belief. They've, they haven't seen anything to encourage their hope that this promise might actually be true. Apparently, the star isn't helping them find Bethlehem as yet. And... You know, they're having to ask around. They were only a few miles away from their destination, but they might have given up. Why? Because of the way people were acting. But this is where it starts to matter that they were wise. The Magi were wise enough to see where all this was leading. They had no interest in getting caught up in a bloody civil war. They may have been so disappointed with Jerusalem they wanted to give up on finding her savior, but wisdom and hope led them to finish their quest in spite of the apparent faithlessness of God's people. All this makes me think of how the church might look to seekers of truth today. Imagine the thoughts of the wise men. These are Daniel's people. If you know anything about Daniel, 
These are the chosen ones of God that we've read about in the scripture. Why are these people not camped out at Bethlehem anticipating the Messiah? Where is their faith? Where is their hope? The Magi must have been discouraged by Jerusalem's reaction. They must have felt very alone nearing the end of their long journey to worship the Christ. Even after the religious leaders told Herod of the prophecy, apparently none of them bothered to accompany the Magi to find the child. Their hope was in other things, and so it seems they just stayed home, found reasons to be disturbed. See, the fulfillment of the hope of our Magi was not found in a resolution, in resolution of the situation with Herod. Or improved attitudes from others who may have disappointed them, but rather their hope was found in serving Jesus. For now, that meant putting one foot in front of the other in spite of the indifference of the rest of God's people. They decided to continue serving Jesus in their journey. Even though others who should have been leading had lost their way. Secondly, we could see that the wise men served Jesus in their worship. Let's pick up the story in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. What a beautiful picture that is. They made it. The quest was complete. They arrived in Bethlehem after months of grueling travel, hardship, no telling what dangerous adventure, all to do just one thing to worship Jesus. From a human standpoint, it seems like quite a trivial end to such a trek. Does it not? They made a life-threatening journey. They followed a star. They bowed down and worshiped a baby. They gave him gifts. Then they departed. Did God have placed such a high value on the worship of his son, even as an infant, to call these men to sacrifice that much, to travel that far, to exercise so much faith just to worship Christ near the time of his birth for a few moments? From our limited point of view, it seems almost presumptuous of God. Maybe they left families behind. 
Maybe they spent all of their fortunes to get there. Maybe some of their company even died on the journey. I wonder if they passed through any areas where a plague might have been raging. Someone could have died. The Magi might have asked, was it all worth it? But I have a feeling they didn't see it that way. In fact, I believe they found everything they were seeking in that moment. Worshiping Jesus Christ was the most beautiful thing, the most meaningful thing, the most fulfilling thing they had ever done. Their hope was fulfilled in worshiping Christ. Suddenly, all of their study, all their knowledge and learning, all of their riches and pomp and prestige and power meant absolutely nothing. And all that mattered was that they had been among the first to worship Christ, the newborn king. Their hope was completely and utterly fulfilled as they worshiped Jesus. It's also very interesting to notice that the three specific gifts of the Magi both foreshadowed the destiny and symbolized the identity of Jesus. The text says they presented him their gifts. The Greek word translated presented means more than just laying them down. It's a word that refers to an offering made as an act of worship. A better translation is that they offered him their gifts. They did so in the same way that we should give our offerings to God today. As an act of worship. For his use and his glory. The gold symbolized royalty. Gold was considered the gift of kings. In the Bible, gold symbolized the glory of God. One example is the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence and holiness. Frankincense was often coupled with worship in the Old Testament. This was a sweet incense that was used in some of the offerings in the Jewish temple, God's temple it was used to worship Yahweh and now Jesus the aroma of frankincense rising to God was meant to symbolize the prayers of his people here it's being offered to Jesus it's an act of worship Myrrh may have been the most profound and strange of the three gifts, though precious, one would not necessarily think of this as a gift to give a king. Myrrh was an embalming ointment, which
which would be wrapped in the garments of the deceased, whether Mary and Joseph or the wise men that connected the prophecies of Jesus' birth with the prophecies about his death, we do not know for sure. But the symbolism of an embalming ointment given at his birth would have been hard to miss. In fact, we should never really think of the birth of Christ without remembering that he was born to die. The Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. This is a good time to remember the cross and the way Jesus commanded us to do it. Ushers will distribute some individual packages which contain both bread and juice. You can go ahead when you get them and, and work on getting the top flap open, which is a very thin purplish colored cellophane. That's the first thing you want to open. The, the thicker tab will open the drink. After you get uh, that top part open for the bread, please hold on to it for a moment so that we can take these together. I'll add that communion is meant for people who have put their faith in, their, their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. And indeed, you are proclaiming your faith in Him as you take it. Therefore, if now's not the time for you to do that, feel free to let it pass by. And while these are being distributed, I'm going to sing a song, um, and I hope you'll take that opportunity to do some introspection, to um, ask the Lord to search your heart, confess any sin, turn your heart to Christ, even as you remember his pain on the cross and what he paid, the price he paid for your sin. And after the song, we're, we're going to symbolically join the wise men in worshiping Christ together by taking the bread and juice. Just greet with them. 
nails and spears shall pierce him through the cross be borne for me for you the 
Jesus simply told us that as often as we do this, to do it in remembrance of him, <clears throat> we were also told in scripture that as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is a, means this is a statement of your faith in Jesus. And also that this, this represents the new covenant in his blood. That's a new promise, which is what we're talking about, having hope in his promises. And, and we could probably mention several promises, but the new covenant is that promise that, that truly by faith in Christ, we can receive grace, we can be saved and know uh, that we'll have eternity with him. There's also in that the promise of his second coming and understanding that he's coming back to get us. <clears throat> and so as you uh, take that bread, I just want you to do what he said and remember his broken body. And he said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Not only was his body broken, but we know that he shed blood. The Bible is clear from like page one that very, very early in scripture, we, God begins to uh, set the standard that sin can only be forgiven through shed blood. And ulti ult the ultimate forgiveness of sin, the kind of forgiveness of sin that would mean it was forgiven forever and ever required a perfect and spotless uh, lamb and that, that lamb wound up being Jesus. And so this represents the blood that he shed. Um, and don't be afraid to, to remember that he actually shed blood. That he actually um, bled and died for your sins. And so as you take this, just remember him and thank him. Lord, we thank you that you know, even though the song asks the question rhetorically, what child is this? We know exactly. And we worship you. We join with those wise men. We wish we could have been there. But now we know that as your word says and as you told us, you would be present 
in these moments. You're here. No longer a baby, but a glorified and risen Lord. Waiting for a time of the Father's choosing when you will come and get us. And we look forward with great hope and anticipation for that. Thank you for the sacrifice that means we get to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. As I um, begin to wrap up, recall that we have seen the fulfillment of the wise men's hope in how they served Jesus, both in their journey and in their worship. But the final way we see them finding hope by serving Jesus is in their choices. The Bible says, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. Don't miss the significance of this fact. Herod the Great was perhaps the richest and definitely the most, one of the most powerful men on earth. Some say he had more wealth than Caesar. It was probably second to Caesar in terms of power. And he had ordered the wise men to return to him after they found Jesus. But they disobeyed. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. That hadn't even hit me until this moment. <laughs> until this moment, that had not hit me. The subtlety of what I just said. They disobeyed the directive of the king and followed God instead. There was considerable danger in this choice for the wise men. Herod was well connected with Rome. It's likely he had the connections to bring harm to the Magi even back in their homeland. But one fact is clear, a choice was made. The Magi chose to serve King Jesus rather than King Herod. I get the feeling Jesus would affect their choices from that point forward. Believing God is the source of hope. Serving Jesus is the fulfillment of hope. The wise men in the Christmas story are great examples of those principles. How do we apply what we've learned? I'll put it this way. The wise men trusted God's promises. Wise people still do.
The wise men followed God's direction. Wise people still do. The wise men took a journey to Jesus. Wise people still do. The wise men worshiped Jesus. Wise people still do. The wise men chose Jesus as their king. Wise people still do. I want to close with one last passage of scripture. It's wanting to feedback. One last passage of scripture. This one from the New Testament. <clears throat> Paul writing to a pastor named Titus, and he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait. Can anybody, are we, anybody waiting? Are we waiting? Is there waiting going on? While we wait for what? The blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Our blessed hope refers to that day when Jesus will return and bring an end to all suffering and all death, all sickness, the hope of the wise men was in the first coming of Christ and in time he came exactly as the scripture said he would. He brought salvation and redemption for those who believe. However, as we all know, the world is still broken. There's still work to be done and therefore much of our hope rests in the second coming of Christ. Do you find your hope in this promise of God? Or do you still search for hope in other things? The word of God is clear. Christ will come again and he will make all things new. Where is your hope? Are you more like the wise men? Seeking Christ, serving Christ, or are you more like the people in Jerusalem, mostly ignoring him and forgetting him? Is your hope fulfilled in serving Christ until he comes while we wait for the glorious appearing? Or is it more true that you'll actually be disturbed when he comes? Where is your hope? I can tell you this, when I put my hope in anything other than Christ, like how soon all this virus junk will be over, or, or in people doing the right thing, or always saying the right thing, or in hum, any human leader, or, or really in anything other than Christ, I always find myself disappointed eventually 
Where is your hope? It's Christmas time. Where is your hope? Let's turn our hearts to Christ right now as we pray. Father, so many voices are yelling at us. There's so many distractions. There's so many things where we find ourselves wishing this could happen. Wishing it could happen sooner. God, turn our hearts to Jesus so that we can be the light and the witness we need to be to others who don't even know him yet. Turn our hearts to Jesus so that we can show people where to find hope. If they were to look for hope in the places where we seem to be looking for it, would they find you? Convict us and change us and show us how to turn our hearts to actually believe again that you could come at any moment to know that that's the real answer. That you're the one we hope in that only you can save us, that only you can rescue us, that only you can help us wait through all of the other stuff. And God, for anyone who might be in this room right now, recently, recently someone was in this room and decided to put their trust in you for the first time. Maybe there's someone today who just realizes they've been everywhere else, but they've never really put their trust in Jesus Christ that they could live the rest of their life just hoping for an eternity with you, hoping for your return, hoping to know you, hoping to walk with you, hoping to wait with you until you make all things new to have eternity with you and your people. Somebody maybe today is willing to just turn from everything else and turn to Jesus and say, I just want to put my trust and my hope in Jesus right now. I just, I surrender to him. Whatever he wants, he's my Lord. I want him to be my king. I want to get down and worship him as my king, my Lord, my savior. If you, want to, if you want to do that today, just say yes to God. Just say yes. That's what I want, God. Save me. Heal me from my sin. Take it away. Help me be what you want me to be in life. I want to live for you from now on. Just tell him. You can only do that because the Spirit right now is speaking to you. He draws us. He's the one who's speaking. He's the one who's telling you to do this. Would you say yes to Jesus? He's probably talked to you about it before. He's probably tried to lead you to do this before. Maybe when you were younger. 
Maybe this time he'd say yes. We don't know how many chances we get. How about Christmas 2020? How about it? How about that, that being the time when you turned your heart to Jesus and you gave your life to Christ? You can do it right now. We have a baptism coming soon and you can be another one of them if you'd like to demonstrate this faith. But today, why don't you just put your heart in his hands. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for, for knowing that, that Christmas is real. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time of worship. In his name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.